Good morning, everyone. I have a feeling that if you show up on Easter Sunday morning, you might get to finally see what that painting is that we've been wondering about for weeks on end here during Lent. Well, what a privilege it is to be here in the presence of God. That's where we're at. God says that when we gather together as Christians, he's here. So let's talk to him. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that in this holy place, you are doing your work. You're meeting each one of us. You're not holding back any love. You're pouring yourself out for us again. Reaching past all our defenses to have an intimate talk with us, the real us, deep down, behind the masks. You meet us there, and when we experience you, we know it's good. Oh God, speak to us now through your word. May it empower us, may it challenge us. May we hear. We ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. And we're going to read 1 through 15. Mark chapter 15, 1 through 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists. He had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Thank you, God. Thank you so much. Amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday. 
And that was probably not the scripture you were expecting, was it? I mean, aren't we here to celebrate the triumphal entry and Hosanna and all those good things? Well, if you remember what we've been doing here at Bemis Point UMC for all of Lent, we've been working our way through Holy Week each weekend. Each Sunday, we've worked through another day of Holy Week. And so we talked about Palm Sunday about six Sundays ago. We talked about that knowing that it was coming back around. But we've been contemplating this most sacred time of the Christian year. We've been looking at each day of the week through Lent, and it's been our Dead Man Walking series. Jesus, all this week, is a dead man walking. Palm Sunday, he did enter Jerusalem like a king, and the crowds shouted, Hosanna, which means save us now. They were expecting a political revolution. They were expecting freedom. It was a joyful, joyous moment for Jesus. The next day, Jesus entered the temple and in a very blatant and highly symbolic way challenged the religion that was being used at that point to rip people off, especially the poor and needy. And here in this place, 300 of us stood up and said, I will do something for someone who is in need. Some of you have been praying. Some of you have been reaching out to your neighbors. Some of you have been driving folks. Some of you have been connecting to places where someone needs help. If you haven't done anything yet, I just encourage you to think about that. On Tuesday, Jesus taught in the streets And of course, his most famous teaching was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the core. It's the core of our purpose as to why we are here on this earth. On Wednesday, Jesus was anointed with a most precious perfume. He was anointed by a woman in Bethany. And remember, Mark didn't tell us who. And I didn't either. Did you look that up? If you didn't, I encourage you to do that sometime this afternoon. Who was that woman who spent $75,000 on Jesus to anoint him, in a sense, for death? On Thursday, at the Last Supper, Jesus shows how he becomes the new Passover sacrifice as he uh, reinvents the Passover meal and helps them see that he will be the Passover sacrifice now. And now it is Friday, and Jesus the night before has been betrayed by a close friend. He's been dragged away and tried and uh, uh, persecuted throughout that trial. In the middle of the night, he was condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is the leading council of the Jews. These are the number one uh, chief priests, uh, teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sadducees, these are the head honchos. These are the guys who get to make all the decisions. And they've conducted an illegal trial. There are several aspects of it. There were supposed to be no capital punishment trials ever held at night. This one was. There were supposed to be no trials held on the eve of the Sabbath. This one was. There were supposed to be no trials held on the eve of a religious holiday. This one was. 
If there was a verdict of acquittal, it was okay to say that the same day. If there was a verdict of conviction, it was required that they wait an entire day, that they sleep on it before they can make that final verdict. In this case, they jumped right on it and didn't wait that day. There's even more aspects of that trial that's a sham. And in that time, those chief priests have been primarily interested in the religious question. Who does Jesus say that he is? Who does he portray himself as? Who is he going to finally come out and say, I'm that guy? And finally, the chief priest says to you, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus' answer is clear. He says, I am. I am. Which those words alone are loaded because of their Old Testament meaning where Moses says, who will I say sent me to the Israelites? And God tells him, tell them, I am who I am has sent you. Jesus is saying, I am God. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man, his favorite way of referring to himself, and also a favorite way that Daniel refers to the Messiah, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's all he's got to say. They go ballistic. They tear their clothes. They say, this guy is out. We're going to send him for execution. And now it is Friday morning, and they take him to the top. They want to get rid of him. They take him to Pilate, and this is the passage that we read today. Pilate, the leader of the Romans in Israel, the proconsul, who was the fifth proconsul or prefect over Israel, he was only there for 10 years. Only 10 years. He had to deal with so many riots and he had so much of his own political turmoil that he only lasted 10 years in that time. And this is early on in that time. Pilate was put into power by a guy whose name I love, Lucius Alias Sejanus. Wow. Don't you kind of wish you knew somebody with that name? Boy, sounds big and important. Lucius Alias Sejanus was the one who appointed Pilate to Israel. But unfortunately, Lucius, Lucius Alias Sejanus got a little too full of himself. And he decided to try to um, undermine Emperor Tiberius and overthrow him. And guess what? It didn't work. And so he was taken out and executed, and everybody who was put into power by Lucius alias Sejanus was suddenly under question, are you loyal to Tiberius? And so Pilate finds himself in an extremely sticky situation. He can't afford to let there be anything that would even be a hint that he is not loyal to Emperor Tiberius. And then along comes another annoying problem. Pilate is a practical guy. He's not interested in the religious stuff. He's a secular man. He's interested in what he believes is real power. Politics. That's where he's put his whole life. That's where he believes the true power of the world presides. And Pilate begins to probe 
what Jesus' political views are. You ever had a friend come up to you and say, well, what do you think about this politically? And you're kind of like, mm, I don't know if I want to tell this person what I really think politically. Or maybe you're not that kind of person. Maybe you're like, I'll tell you exactly what I think politically. Jesus is asked his political views here. Pilate wants to know what Jesus thinks about Jewish kings and who's really in control. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks him. Now, can you just imagine the almost snide feeling of that question? Are you the king of the Jews? You who are standing before me after having been beaten up by the Sanhedrin's guard, looking pretty bad already. Are you, you loser, the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And of course, that's a pretty loaded political statement. If yes, well, we'll be glad to put you to death to show you who's really king around here. And if no, well, is there any chance of justice on this Friday morning for Jesus? What if these Jewish leaders send messages to Tiberius, bad reports about letting some supposed king of the Jews go? It's not looking too good for Jesus. His answer is neither yes nor no. It's totally non-committal. Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. That's a great answer. It's kind of like, I know you are, but what am I? You know, it's kind of like, yeah, you've said so. Are you saying so? Are you telling me that? Can you imagine if a person in a modern courtroom answered in that type of manner? Did you murder this person? You said so. What? It would be interesting. Can you imagine if a politician being interviewed on TV completely clammed up except to say, you're the one saying it, for everything they got asked? I mean, that would be a fascinating interview. You know, what do you think about this policy? Eh, I don't know. You're the one talking about it. We'd say, are they taking responsibility? What, what's going on here? Jesus is non-committal. When it's a religious question about relationship with God, are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus knows this is going down. He knows it's going to go down the way it's going to go down. And he knows it's the right thing, as painful as it is. Jesus clearly answers, yes, it's true. I am. I'm the guy you're looking for. And, and what's more, you will see me sitting in the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> it's kind of like he throws gas on the fire. Not only, yeah, but yes, let me throw this gas on the fire and make you even more mad. But when it's a matter of politics, Jesus doesn't choose to tip his hand at all. He won't give Pilate any satisfaction in the matter. He won't even respond to the false accusations being hurled against him by the chief priests. It reminds me of the suffering servant passage from Isaiah 53. 
He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. I wondered about that. I wondered, are sheep silent before the shearers? So I looked it up. I read this account of a guy who went to um, uh, do a movie in Israel, and so they were trying to uh, recreate ancient sheep shearing practices. And uh, they went to this Bedouin camp, and um, they said, well, let's, let's film what it's like to shear a sheep the ancient way, not with you know, razors and all the electric stuff that they have today. It takes about 20 minutes. He said that all the animals around were all just you know, bleeding, doing their whole thing. But the sheep that is shorn, once its feet are tied, it's kind of spread back. And the thing was silent the whole time. As if she understood that what was happening to her was actually a good thing. 20 minutes. Now, I've never shorn a sheep. I'm only going on what it says here. But regardless, Jesus surely was questioned for at least 20 minutes. And what does he say? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing in front of the person who can take his life. Pilate, it says, is amazed because it is not his typical experience for prisoners who are likely to be tortured to death to refuse to defend themselves. Pilate's judged many people. He's not scared to put people to death in awful ways. He's heard a lot of pleading and begging in his time. But he still has a little smidgen of a modicum of justice. Why should we crucify this guy, he says to the crowd a little later. What crime has he committed? In reality, a Jewish life means nothing to Pilate. For Pilate, it's all about political pragmatism. What will make me not look bad in front of Emperor Tiberius? What will stop another riot from starting? What can I do to wriggle out of my responsibility this day? What will allow me to look strong and to save face in front of all these people? And then there comes a little phrase, a little phrase that every time I read this, it just pops off the page at me, a phrase which captures so much in so little a space. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate lets Jesus be killed. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate succumbs to the pressure. He is a fearful guy. He gives in to the will of those who are shouting in front of him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate releases a known terrorist back into the community. Wanting to satisfy the crowd in our day, it would be saying, yep, just let one of those guys from Guantanamo down there just set them loose in New York City. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, 
Pilate releases a known terrorist, and he purposefully sends an innocent man to be tortured and killed. Purposefully. He sends him. He condemns him, wanting to satisfy the crowd. A total sham of a trial is conducted. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, a clear example of injustice is laid out before us. Pilate knows there's no evidence against this guy. He knows that this is entirely a a, a religious thing. But he knows it could move into a political question. And so he steps aside, wanting to satisfy the crowd, an obvious setup by the chief priests to twist the arm of Pilate into condemning Jesus is allowed to happen. But once again, Pilate doesn't really care. I mean, what's one Jewish life compared to his career? Or avoiding another riot or satisfying a mob of angry religious maniacs. These people are nuts, he's thinking. Let's just get this over with. And so out of fear, Pilate condemns Jesus to death. Isn't it interesting what the Bible says about fear? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John 4.18. And this from 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear can drive people to do crazy things. Fear is not what God is all about. You know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's not afraid of what's going on in this world. He dives right in. This is the gospel. He comes to us in our fear and he offers love. He comes to us in our brokenness and he offers life. He shows up when everybody else is quaking with fear. God shows up and says, I've got a better plan. I've got a better, better plan. And that's a plan that we see unfold in Holy Week. This Palm Sunday morning, when we are contemplating how in one week's time, God's Son, the Savior of the world, the one who will be seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, who will be seen coming on the clouds of heaven, can go from prince to prisoner. He can go from conqueror to convict. In one week's time, from crowned to criminal. From hyped to hopeless. From respected to rejected. And as we ponder how fear can drive people to God, to put God on trial and condemn him to death. How fear can cause people to even take the one who loves us so much and reject him, the one who has the only hope for this world, and say, I can't do it. I'm too fearful. As we think about this this morning, I have a question for you. And my question is this. What crowd are you tempted to throw Jesus under the bus for? What or who is the crowd in your life? What is being demanded of you? 
What is out there that scares you? Whom do you want to satisfy? Who is it that's sitting there and you want to make them happy above all else? And what are you tempted to sacrifice in order to satisfy them? When we were singing this morning, I sat back down and I started writing notes from the songs we were singing. When we see you, we have strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Our God saves. There is hope in his name. Those are powerful things. But wanting to satisfy the crowd, would you give them up? Let's pray. We're so tempted to want to satisfy the crowd, Lord. We're so tempted to give in to our fears. We're so tempted to go along with some sham, some trial that's being conducted to help us come out looking better. We're so tempted to think about ourselves instead of the person suffering right next to us. We're so tempted to think about the things of this world and Jesus to look at you and say, I'll come back to that. I think you'll probably forgive me if I just ditch you right now. Oh God, for every time we have wanted to satisfy our crowd and we've given into it. Forgive us. And Lord, thank you that you do. Amen.